Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for November 20th to 26th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor David Robinson on the shifting reputation of Wilhelm Wundt. And finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For November 20th, in 1883, William James wrote to the trustees of Harvard University to ask for a small room and $300 for a psychology research laboratory. The trustees allocated the funds but did not dedicate space until two rooms in Lawrence Hall were assigned in the spring of 1885. And the very next day, on November 21st, 1883, James McKean Cattell reported for his first day of work gathering data in Wilhelm Wundt's laboratory. Also on November 21st, in 1936, an article in the New York Times reported the prefrontal lobotomies performed by Walter Freeman and James Watts, the first in the United States. For November 22nd, in 1919, John B. Watson's book, Psychology from the Standpoint of a Behaviorist, was first published. For November 23rd, in 1906, James McKean Cattell published the first of three papers in the journal Science on measuring eminence in scientists. The work grew into his book, American Men of Science, and later, American Men and Women of Science. And also on November 23rd in 1965, the anti-anxiety drug methaquilone, better known by its trade name Quaalude, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Methaquilone was discovered in a World War II search for artificial anti-malarial drugs when the Japanese cut off supplies of cinchona bark. Its effects made methaquilone a popular illicit drug. For November 24th, in 1859, Charles Darwin's book The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection was published. All 1,250 copies of the first printing were sold on the first day of sale. And on November 26th, in 1900, Edward L. Thorndike and Robert S. Woodworth reported the results of their studies of the transfer of training to the New York Academy of Sciences. The studies showed that training in one skill had no effect on the performance of other skills, thus refuting the theory of formal discipline, which held that education strengthens one's general mental powers. On November 20, 1875, Wilhelm Wundt presented his inaugural lecture at the University of Leipzig. 
Wundt's arrival at Leipzig, after a short posting in Zurich, marked a turning point in his career, and in the fortunes of the new experimental, or as Wundt termed it, physiological approach to psychology. His already published textbook, Principles of Physiological Psychology, rapidly became the standard work in the field, and with the official opening of his laboratory in 1879, Wundt established himself as the preeminent figure in the discipline which he had done so much to bring about. On the line to talk to us today about Wundt's career and legacy is Professor David Robinson of Truman University in Kirksville, Missouri. Professor Robinson is the co-editor with Robert Reber of the book Wilhelm Wundt in History, The Making of a Scientific Psychology, published by Kluwer Academic and Plenum Publishers in 2001. Professor Robinson, could you please start by telling us a little bit about Wundt's background? How did he make his way into physiology and then to experimental psychology? Uh, well, uh, Wundt was born um, in the area of Heidelberg, where is, of course, a famous German university. And um, it turns out on his mother's side, he was uh, related to uh, uh, some science teachers, medical men named Arnold. And uh, so it was kind of natural that he became a medical student. And he uh, lived and worked in the area of Heidelberg, uh, throughout the 1850s, 1860s, and into the 1870s. Uh, why does he turn uh, from medical practice? It seems he never had any interest in that, actually, um, but in science and physiology. And Heidelberg was certainly uh, not only a center for medical education uh, at that time, but also for science in general. The famous names of Bunsen and Kirchhoff and eventually Helmholtz are tied to that uh, town at that time, and Wundt uh, actually uh, was Helmholtz's laboratory assistant. Mm -hmm. So probably uh, Wundt became his assistant because he had studied under some of the same people that Helmholtz knew. For example, he had a year in Berlin with Johannes Müller and Emil Dubois-Raymond. So how do you get to experimental psychology when it doesn't really exist as such? Uh, that, in the career of Wundt, is uh, a very interesting uh, story uh, because he went from being Helmholtz's assistant uh, when Helmholtz left um, Heidelberg to being kind of a, you know, just a, a lecturer, a docent, where he just had to make a living by writing books and doing lectures. And he got more and more interested in some of the earlier lectures he'd done on anthropology and physiology of the senses. And he started publishing uh, in the very latest, late 50s, early 1860s, uh, some uh, work on uh, especially uh, visual perception. Uh, some of these early forays into experimental psychology dating back into the early 1860s actually weren't very successful. Is that right? Uh, his first textbook of lectures didn't actually sell very well, and it wasn't until he'd published the Principles of Physiological Psychology and then had attained the Leipzig position in 1875 that the idea of experimental psychology really began to garner a significant following. What was it in the, in the 1870s? Um, I would say already by the mid-1870s. I think part of it is that he, he, he didn't have a lot of success as a physiologist. He did not get the chair of Helmholtz when Helmholtz left. Uh, he had already started writing more philosophical uh, works on what they would call you know, inductive philosophy or philosophy of science. And he also wasn't getting 
chairs. He wasn't being called to professorships in those areas either in the early 1870s. So he kept hammering away, I guess, on the uh, problems of perception and what he called physiological psychology. And um, I think uh, that uh, several things are uh, to be that can explain the attention that he begins to get to this after working on it for so much time. Mm -hmm. One is he left physiology behind. He no longer became involved in research and disputes in areas where Helmholtz and a number of other younger people were clearly dominating, people like Ewald Herring, for example. So he kind of gets pushed into an area where he can maybe organize the ideas uh, better. And indeed, he did uh, put together uh, in this textbook, Principles of Physiological Psychology, published uh, in 1873 and in two volumes in uh, 1874. That um, was sort of his ticket then to really getting a professorship in philosophy, which is what he wanted. Why, the, why philosophical faculties in the 1870s would choose a person with medical and science, research scientific background to be a professor of philosophy is probably the interesting question. Uh, he got the position, his first position in philosophy was in Zurich, uh, when a famous neo-Kantian, Friedrich Al Albert Lange, um, left to go to Marburg, and he had a chair of inductive philosophy, and it seemed a match for that, it seems. But then the chair in, in Leipzig was uh, a, local, a locally interesting story where the faculty was uh, divided on how to fill an important uh, philosophy professorship, and so they divided the chair, and they hired a uh, prominent, it turned out to be a prominent historian of philosophy named Max Heinze, and Wundt, the fellow with the scientific philosophy background, all in the same year. Uh, two, um, two minor figures instead of a major figure for this major university, Leipzig. So uh, part of his success had to do with his attaining that position and then making a very good use of it. Another thing that explains uh, Leipzig University's interest in him was um, the presence there of two very important uh, people in, um, in early psychological studies. One, the physiologist E.H. Weber, of the famous Weber-Fechner Law, and the other was uh, Gustav Fechner, who had published Elements of Psychophysics in the 1860s. And it turns out there were scientists and even mathematicians and historians who were interested in psychological research as a new foundation for a modern philosophy. So Wundt became a magnet in Leipzig, not only for German students, but for American students as well. What do you think made Wundt so appealing to Americans, as opposed to, say, some of his German colleagues like Karl Sturm for G.E. Mueller? Uh, actually, Americans... Um, did uh, become interested in Stumpf and Mueller eventually. Uh, but Wundt was uh, set up with a big uh, institute uh, in Leipzig first. And so I think uh, his Institute of Experimental Psychology was the great draw. But what Wundt did is he took his instruments um, from Heidelberg, where he'd been working on some research, to Zurich, where he used them a little bit in the instruction for about a year. And then when he came to Leipzig, 
uh, he started more formally introducing um, experimental demonstrations and psychological experiments, reaction time, psychophysics, that sort of thing, in his lectures. And this is 1875. By 1879, he's working with advanced students, what we would call graduate students today. And by 1882, or probably 1883, uh, he has the establishment of a sustained institute for experimental psychology in Leipzig. So I think probably that institute was what attracted people uh, more than Wundt. They could be attracted to Wundt because he's famous for for experimental psychology, but then they could also do something uh, in the laboratory. And by I say they, I mean Americans and other foreigners uh, could get hands-on experience doing experiments uh, in the laboratory and get a degree in, you know, a PhD in, or Dr. Phil, they called in Germany, uh, in philosophy with Wundt sitting there and tinkering with the brass instruments and the wiring and that sort of thing uh, had, had great attraction for American students, like James McKean Cattell, or like Stanley Hall, who wasn't exactly a student, he visited there. Mm -hmm. um, many people, not only Americans, but uh, uh, Belgians, um, Russians, other Eastern Europeans, even, even English and a few French later on, um, would, uh, well, they're taking advantage of the fact that Germany, large German universities like Leipzig, Berlin, Heidelberg, were at the forefront of science and what we now call social science and humanities and classics. And uh, especially for the Americans in those days, uh, American, American universities, very few of them, even in the 1880s, had doctoral programs. So to come back from Germany with a doctoral degree could make a person, well, it could make a person president of Yale or of Chicago, <laughs> if, uh, as some psych people trained in Wundt's uh, laboratory became. Well, if I could move from uh, Wundt's own career to uh, Wundt's reputation uh, later on, uh, for nearly a century, from, say, the 1920s forward, uh, Wundt's uh, work was largely dismissed in the English language literature on psychology, especially in textbooks, as having been introspectionist, a, a term which was the object of more than a little contempt on the part of American behaviorists. But in the 1980s came a serious reassessment of Wundt's work, led by people like Kurt Danziger and Arthur Blumenthal and Robert Reber. It turned out that Wundt had, in fact, not been a fan of the kind of extended introspection practiced later by Titchener, and that much of Wundt's experimental work had been based on reaction time, not unlike that of some modern cognitive psychologists. Could you tell us a bit about what had caused that pervasive misunderstanding of Wundt's work and about the current view of, of Wundt's historical position? There are two main words associated with Wundt in English language literature, at least until the mid-1970s or 1980s, and that was introspectionist and structuralist. It seemed that Wundt was called a structuralist by Titchener uh, in an effort to kind of um, distinguish himself and to criticize functionalists. Uh, this is a term that Wundt had had no interest in, mm -hmm. and maybe it applies to some aspects of his experimental work, maybe not. Introspection is a more interesting problem, and I think maybe Kurt Danziger has written uh, some of the most interesting uh, 
historical and intellectual investigations on the problem of introspection. I think there's several things historically and then several things intellectually that, that tell, that can explain uh, some misunderstanding of Wundt uh, in, still in um, American textbooks. One is that he lived a long time. And if he had died in the 1890s at his height, then people would take his legacy and develop it further. Uh, in fact, he lived long enough to develop his legacy in many different directions. By the time he died in 1920, a number of things had happened. One is that there were um, many competing uh, centers for psychological research uh, in Germany and in other countries, particularly in the United States. Another is that one of the um, major directions in the United States by that time was behaviorism. Um, and behaviorism, like reflexology in, in Russia, uh, was very objectivist and dismissed introspection. Wundt uh, thought that psychology was a study of mental experience. Mm -hmm. And so he thought that people, the introspection or self-reporting had to be part of certain investigations. He wanted to study these things as objectively, as scientifically as possible. And so, yes, he did, in fact, um, criticize the extended introspection that Titchener uh, developed in Cornell, uh, even uh, those um, reports of imageless thought by Wundt's uh, own student, Kulpa, in Würzburg. Uh, he wanted controlled introspection, he would call it, or self-observation. Mm -hmm. uh, and often this had to do with very practiced uh, subjects who could get uh, reaction times down to a minimum, for example, if you're working on reaction times. Or in psychophysics, if you would get you know, the basic parameters uh, worked out. So he was doing very fundamental work uh, in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, and later, as people get, I guess, wider perspective on problems of psychology, uh, they... Um, they, they pick on this introspectivist thing as being uh, a kind of dismissal of one. It had to start there, I think. These kinds of things had to start at that time. And so uh, the, just the development, the historical development of psychology with Wundt and many of the people um, later uh, means that there's going to be criticism of Wundt's approach to the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, then I think historically there's another thing that sets in, and that is uh, just the predominance of national um, trends in psychology that come shortly before and certainly after World War One. The fact that Wundt died in 1920 and a lot of psychologists, many of whom had studied with him, set down their memories of Wundt in light of their, their sort of horror about the, the excesses of German nationalism uh, meant that uh, there's going to be a kind of dismissive flavor uh, in some of them. Some people were grossly uh, dismissive of Wundt's uh, um, views, philosophical and even um, scientific. Uh, others uh, were just asking questions uh, that uh, led, kept people skeptical. What role do you think was played by uh, the dominant textbook in the history of psychology um, by E.G. Boring, who in fact had been a student of Titchener's? Apparently that description of Wundt in that dominant text was the source of many of the misunderstandings. Do you agree with that? Boring's book is uh, complicated and, um, and always very interesting for me. And I think it's too simple 
to say that Boring's misrepresentation of Wundt is an explanation for uh, the, let's say, the, the cheap dismissals uh, in uh, certain textbooks and the historical chapter. Uh, he makes it a lot more complicated. He understands the introspection problem, for example, so we can't blame him for that. Uh, he's sympathetic, I think, to the problem of sub the need to understand subjective processes as objectively as possible. So he can't be blamed for that. Probably what Boring can be blamed for is that he seems to know what psychology is. And he'll say, well, this is Wundt's psychology, this is his philosophy, and that's not of interest in this book. Uh, when, in fact, for Wundt, uh, those kinds of, and probably many other people in Boring's book, those kinds of dismissive um, uh, handling, uh, that, that does a bit of harm to understanding the complete com approach that they had. If I had one criticism of Boring, uh, it's that he seems to be pretty confident that he knows what psychology is mm -hmm. uh, at the time that he's writing the book. And yet, if you read the details of what he writes uh, about the different people, Wundt included, it's a lot more interesting and useful. Uh, so no, I wouldn't blame him for that. One of the things that seems to be missing from many textbook accounts of Wundt is the fact that the experimental psychology was really only a very small part of Wundt's total output. There was the folk psychology, which occupied the last two decades of his career, and there were a number of philosophical works as well, and these are often skipped over in the textbooks. Could you tell us a little about those things? Um, it's difficult to tell a lot about them because there is so much. He turned problems in systematic philosophy, ethics, metaphysics, those kinds of general problems. System of philosophy was one important book he wrote. And he wrote these books in many editions throughout the 1890s uh, until his death, the last three decades of his life. And as you say, the last two decades of his life, he probably put more, more work into the Fukushishologi, folk psychology, ethnic psychology, it's kind of hard to know how to translate that topic because it belongs to Wundt and a few others, mm -hmm. this topic. We don't really have it anymore. Uh, in terms of pages, um, that was external psychology, a small part of Wundt's output. But in terms of his influence on people, experimental psychology, the Institute of Experimental Psychology, his students, etc., continues to be a very important, a large part of his influence. And so, historically, uh, we have that distinction to make between uh, his writings and his overall influence. Those writings did not have as much influence as his work in psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, they were important to him. They were important to a small group of people around him. The experimental psychology was important to everyone, including us today. Uh, so, therefore, it may not be too terrible a sin to skip over them a bit or give them short shrift in the textbooks. But what you need to understand is for Wundt's outlook on what was a scientific philosophy, what could both parts of psychology to do, both the experimental psychology and the Foucaultsychology, the folk psychology, do for a scientific or Wissenschaftlich, the German term, a scholarly understanding of human life and behavior, that was a complete picture. As a German philosopher, par excellence is what he wanted to be, a German philosopher, what he was, I guess, mm -hmm. in his time, 
uh, it was all part of a big picture. And so, yes, he compiled uh, these endless uh, anthropological reports. He did his own work uh, that actually turned out to be a little more influential than some of the other stuff. He did his own work on, um, on psychology of speech. He wrote on popular works on religion, uh, also trying to explain you know, the psychological, like many other people at the time, uh, the psychological import of religious belief in different cultures and, and that sort of thing. And so for Wundt, all of these things were part of a whole. He lived so long, produced so much, and had such an important influence on a subject, on a discipline that itself has taken a lot of controversial twists and turns that the legacy of Wundt is going to be complicated. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor David Robinson of Truman University in Kirksville, Missouri. Professor Robinson is the co-editor with Robert Reber of the book Wilhelm Wundt in History, The Making of a Scientific Psychology, published in 2001 by Kluwer Academic and Plenum Publishers. That book is an excellent source of material on the reassessment of Wundt's life and legacy that began in the late 1970s and continued on through the 1980s and on to the present day. It is actually the second edition of a book that was edited by Robert Reber alone that goes by a very similar title. Um, other sources of material, good material on, on Wundt, are Arthur L. Blumenthal's article, A Reappraisal of Wilhelm Wundt, that appeared in American Psychologist in 1975, and Kurt Danziger's article, The History of Introspection Reconsidered, which appeared in the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences in 1980. Another excellent source of chapters about Wilhelm Wundt and the reassessment of his legacy um, is the book Wundt Studies, edited by Wolfgang Bringman and Ryan Tweeney, and that was published by Hograf in 1980. Finally, I might mention the um, History of Psychology textbook that we discussed in the interview by E.G. Boring. That was called A History of Experimental Psychology. It was originally published in 1929 by Appleton Century, and there was a famous second edition in 1950. And now it's time for our birthdays. First, for November 20th, in 1855, Josiah Royce was born. Royce was a Harvard philosopher with a strong interest in the problems of psychology. He was president of the American Psychological Association in 1901. Also for November 20th, in 1886, Carl von Frisch was born. Von Frisch is best known for his ethological studies of communicative dances in honeybees, for which he won the Nobel Prize in 1973. Also, on November 20th, in 1916, Donald T. Campbell was born. Campbell's writings on research methods, measurement, and social psychology reflect broad interest in psychology, philosophy, and sociology. He was American Psychological Association president in 1975. And on the same day, November 20th, 1916, Charles Osgood was born. Osgood's interest in psycholinguistics led to extensive studies of the connotative meanings of words as measured by his semantic differential technique. He was APA president in 1963. For November 21st, Knight Dunlap was born in 1875. Dunlap's work focused on visual perception, abnormal and social psychology, and the psychology of religion. He was APA president in 1922. 
For November 23rd in 1923, Robert Zients was born. Zients's imaginative studies have explored the nature of social facilitation and the effects of mere exposure on liking, correlates of birth order, and the effects of muscular feedback on emotion. And finally, for November 26th, in 1894, Norbert Wiener was born. Wiener pioneered the field of cybernetics, the application of information theory to the behavioral sciences. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to have your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at York U, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 